Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today on the podcast, Michael D'Amico joins us, um, and we're super grateful to have Michael on. Michael is the Vice President of Oaks Integrated Care. He's a licensed social worker, um, and he's also uh, really clinically and administratively oversees mental health and addiction services in Mercer County, including the CCBHC, which he can talk about a little bit more. It's a it's a federal demonstration project um, in partnership with SAMHSA and the state of New Jersey. And so that'd be interesting to talk about a little bit. Uh, Michael is, he's a leader, a trainer, he's an advocate, and he's focused on the wellness and healing of individuals. And so Michael, thanks for being on and t- sharing some of your time with us today. Absolutely, thank you so much for, for having me. Any opportunity to, to, to talk and, and to, uh, you know, to, to kind of share you know, my story and, and some of my experience with others and, and hear from others and have a conversation with you is, is always welcome and appreciated. Well, and I think it's probably one of my favorite things is these conversations that we have. Um, you know, we're coming out of COVID now and we can be much more social than maybe we were allowed to be in the past, but we kind of started this podcast during COVID and I'll tell you, it fed, it fed a need for me to one, meet people in the industry and, and listen to people and just make a connection. Um, so it's been really fun and I'm excited to hear, you know, your journey and, and, and how, you know, what you're passionate about as well, which, you know, maybe that's a good starting point is to maybe talk a little bit about how you ended up in the mental health and addiction industry. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, uh, there's, there's so many, uh, a lot of people I've encountered my professional career, so many different uh, kinds of stories of how people sort of, I think, find our field. I think that's sort of the the, the best way to put it, um, is that I find that, that most people find this industry in, in one way or another. Um, and uh, my story, I guess, is, is as everyone's story is, is, is unique. Um, I really, you know, when I was a kid or in high school or even starting out in college, didn't think that this was my trajectory didn't know that I'd be working in behavioral health, um, you know, and uh, my, my wife, who's my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time in college, you know, she was on this track line. She's also in behavioral health. She's a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. She's a licensed professional counselor. Um, and uh, actually my brother is a marriage and family therapist. 
My kid's sister is, uh, is also a social worker. She works with children in, in residential settings. Um, but, uh, and then my sister-in-law works um, with uh, children with uh, developmental uh, disabilities. So we're all sort of in this, in this space, but I think going back, maybe my wife was probably the one that, you know, she knew she, where she was headed. Uh, I thought I was maybe gonna go to law school and that's kind of the track I took. Um, and, uh, you know, found the industry because even though I wanted to go uh, into law school, uh, and kind of go that route. I was interested in doing some work around, you know, public interest law, and had done an internship, uh, legal services of New Jersey, and it was really through that, and then you know, through my wife's experience and journey, um, that I started to become a little bit more aware of behavioral health, mental health, you know, that sort of thing, social services, um, and social work in particular. And um, you know, when I was first introduced to it, and had an opportunity to like meet with some leadership in some social services agencies. Um, I really enjoyed and uh, felt passionate about the the work in the community itself, and really like getting, uh, you know, getting involved with people in a really uh, nitty gritty kind of a way. Um, going into people's homes and, you know, kind of working with them on accessing services and linking to services, addressing environmental needs, and you know, kind of really mixing it up that way. So I felt this this tremendous passion for that at that point in my life, and you know, found that, uh, you know, the social work program at Rutgers was, was the direction I wanted to take my, you know, my, my higher education and, and after my bachelor's degree. So that's really, you know, I think where, where that started, but um, and where my career started specifically. But, uh, you know, I think that over, over, you know, my, my adult years, kind of you look back and, you know, maybe what were the things that uh, you know, led me to that and, um, you know, reflect on that as you grow. And, you know, I always kind of saw myself as a helper and, and definitely somebody who's empathic, you know, even back to, to childhood, um, was kind of always in touch with that. And uh, I think somebody who's very socially engaged, uh, I think that's something I get from, from both of my parents, um, who, uh, you know, are definitely uh, very social individuals, engaging individuals, um, and, and also quite empathic themselves, even though they're not in this industry. Um, so, so I think that that sort of set me up and primed me for then that opportunity later in, earlier in my career to, to be exposed to social work and then, you know, then go down that way. Um, you know, and I started, you know, working mostly with kids and families and that, that's sort of where I, uh, really wanted to be. And, um, you know, and, and I think in the back of my mind felt like at some point, maybe I'll get to addictions. Um, but they're uh, in working with in the addiction space. Um, I think different from some other people who had some maybe personal or in my cases from some family experience with, with substance use. Um, I kind of shot away from it and it thought early in my career, like maybe that's not something I'm ready uh, to, to really, you know, handle professionally. Maybe it's not something I've really handled personally or, or process personally. Um, and so, uh, you know, throughout my early part of my career, really focused on kids and families work and uh, became a licensed clinical social worker, doing clinical therapy and community work, um, all that sort of thing. Uh, and then, you know, from there was really able to, to kind of transition to doing direct work with folks who had co-occurring disorders and then getting involved in leadership, uh, in different programs and standing different programs up at, at Oaks. Um, and, uh, and then that just sort of lent itself to just some natural, natural growth and, uh, and development to kind of get me to where I am now, which is uh, with Vice President at Oaks. And, um, you know, I've had some really unique opportunities along the way. And I'll definitely talk a little bit about the uh, CCBHC, which I think has been transformative uh, at a national level, um, but was also an opportunity that came, you know, uh, 
came to me at Oaks at a really uh, critical point in my career, and, and I think kind of put me on a different trajectory um, that uh, I think has really been valuable, invaluable, and, and really uh, has made me feel super fulfilled in terms of the now administrative, macro, meso level work that I'm able to do uh, as an administrator, but with that clinical background. Mm. Well, and it's fascinating. I listen to you, you know, say, <clears throat> talk about the substance abuse piece and, and, and somehow as an early clinician, I was like, well, those aren't the same, right? Like I, you know, maybe minored in substance abuse and I'm like, well, maybe that'll come in handy. But I did not at that stage really connect or see just how closely substance abuse and mental health are tied together. Um, so I think for, for clinicians, if, if you're not, you know, fully immersed in, you know, because you've had your own addiction story and, and recovery, it may take a little bit to really get the, the connection between those two pieces is because they are highly correlated. Absolutely. And, um, I, I think that even now, right. In, in my own agency, right. Where, um, you know, operationally overseeing all of our, you know, ambulatory care, and, uh, most of our ambulatory care, our, criti- our crisis services for mental health and, and substance use. You know, when I work with the different teams, maybe that are more focused on the mental health side and, you know, less on the co-occurring and substance use side, um, you know, we still sort of see that and um, that there is not always this connection that's made. I think a lot of the universities um, are starting to, you know, embrace that a bit more um, in terms of how those have got to be woven into curriculum and training and education. And our industry is moving much more towards you know, holistic services and treating the whole person, understanding the whole person. Um, but right, same as you, I think kind of coming through the field, approaching it from the mental health side, substance use to me was sort of its own thing. And, um, and it definitely as an industry sort of stood as its own thing in, in many ways. Uh, so, uh, and over time, I think there's now been this, this understanding and this marriage of the two. And um, it, you know, it's definitely changed over the past five to 10 years, I would say. Well, and it seems like that maybe while we're talking about that separation, I know I may be getting off track a little bit, but this conversation has come up with so many different facilities and people in treatment or who are facilitating treatment and healing that it it seems like um, a spiritual aspect is something that on some level is incredibly beneficial in recovery, regardless of what that spiritual piece looks like for somebody. Do you find the same thing that, that that's, you know, we've so many people for so long said, no, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with religion or with God or with anything like that. But I see a shift in the industry towards more spirituality. What, what's your perspective? Yeah. Well, when I say treat the whole person, uh, and this, you know, this is a conversation I've had with our medical director who is, is fantastic and, and he's, uh, you know, been a huge mentor of mine as, as well as a colleague of mine and we've done a lot together here at Oaks. He's done just a tremendous amount in the field for many decades, uh, Dr. Beninti. But um, we talk about the spirituality aspect of, uh, of recovery, right? And, and that it's the physical health piece, the environmental piece, the social piece, and absolutely the spiritual piece. I, I think that for, for the folks that we work with, you know, irrespective of its behavioral health, you know, mental health specific, co-occurring or substance use, um, I think helping people to tune into what their values are, what are their beliefs, what's their, what's their understanding, what sort of, uh, you know, kind of 
gives them that their 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 fundamental you know foundational understanding of the world and their sense of being and place in the world. Um, I think spirituality as as a really integral um, you know part, whatever that ends up being for for for, for people. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be any any one particular thing, but but certainly um, is is tremendous. And I've seen you know a lot of individuals that have you know really done well in, in their recovery journey uh, have been able to tap into that and. Um, and kind of use that as a support, uh, just as much as, you know, social supports, you know, we see that as being really critical too. And I don't think that can ever be understated. Um, just the power of having a positive social, you know, support in your life. I mean, even a lot of research about trauma talks about that, you know, that the, the number one uh, indicator in, in terms of somebody's recovery, um, from traumatic events and from, you know, post-traumatic stress and so on is uh, positive social supports, right? So we just see that in, in and of itself being such a huge um, factor and variable in, in somebody achieving recovery. Mm. <clears throat> Big time. I appreciate you kind of touching on that because I think it is that whole person approach. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, was, uh, I was listening to you introduce yourself and, and said some things about yourself like you said, I'm an empath. <clears throat> and I think... <laughs> And I think um, there's a lot of, of talk out there about what being empath empathic means and what that looks like. But I thought it might be good to maybe describe that a little bit from your perspective. Sure, sure. And um, so, so being, being an empath is something that you know, I, I definitely did not know or uh, understand about myself until uh, later in life. And in working with people and when I do clinical supervision, working with people getting licensure or students or, you know, staff, um, it, it's something that comes up quite often. You know, people, a lot of people that are attracted to this field are, you know, just by virtue of that, are the work that are empathic people. They feel they are able to tune in, in in a very deep and meaningful way and experience, you know, the, the, the feelings and, uh, and so on of the individuals that they're surrounded by. Um, and so for me, being an empath uh, really helps me to connect deeply, you know, with, with people and truly understand and tune into what they might be experiencing, the feelings that they may be having. Um, but part of the challenge of being an empath is that, you know, we open ourselves up to a lot of this, this energy and a lot of this, this, um, these feelings. And as a result, you know, we, we get burnt out, we feel overwhelmed. And so, you know, we're uh, a lot in, individually on sort of how do I, you know, protect myself from that, right? I'm an empath and you use that as a tool to connect with people and understand and to help and advocate. Um, but I think that there needs to be a boundary, right? And there needs to be a way that we kind of keep ourselves protected from absorbing those, uh, those feelings and those emotions. And I think it's important, um, the more that we know about ourselves and who we are individually, the easier it is to sort of separate out some of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, knowing our baseline you know, is, is so, is so critical and so important. I remember years ago, uh, doing a training with, um, a, uh, doctor and it was, it was really work about working with, uh, children on the autism spectrum, um, and, and just individuals with developmental disabilities, learning disabilities, and, uh, getting a lot into, you know, the, the, the truth about thoughts, right. And, you know, the actual connection that, um, that individuals have in terms of uh, what we might be conveying or what we might be exuding in terms of our, our emotional vibes and, you know, how there's been research about, you know, the, about how people's brains respond to the emotions of others. 
Um, and so I, I, you know, keep that in mind and try to, uh, again, stay grounded in who I know that I am and, and teach that to other people as well so that we can create that separation. I mean, there's been so many times I've worked with folks and, you know, you feel the anxiety, the overwhelm, you know, you're, you're carrying their baggage, you know, with, for them, you know, during that session or they give you a piece of that baggage and we need to be able to like remove that um, after and kind of wash that away and, and let that be that person's and that we just use that again to understand them and not to necessarily absorb it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my, my take on, on that. Uh, and, and again, I even have people do like visualization and mindfulness. I had a clinician who used to come over the bridge and, you know, from Philadelphia into New Jersey. And, you know, she had this whole like mindfulness thing. Like once she hit the bridge, you know, she would kind of, you know, do this, this sort of uh, mindfulness thing where she would, uh, you know, kind of prime herself to come across the bridge and start working with her clients and, and sort of help to, to kind of keep herself sort of separate and protected from some of that, you know, that heavy stuff that we deal with. People share incredibly traumatic things um and um you know it, it's hard to not absorb that it's hard to not let that affect you we see we see people working in the industry for for dozens of years i remember listening to an npr uh piece uh, about a woman who was uh working in a hospital and just one day passed out you know after 25 years working in the field and working in hospice and uh the emotional toll that all that took on her and you know the self-care that really uh she maybe wasn't practicing and uh, those things kind of build up over time and you know can really impact us in a negative way <clears throat> and our bodies they um they make sure that that we listen to them and 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 if we don't they um you know they manifest that in very strong clear definite like you will listen to me um yeah. which is that that your story is a great example of that i i've often um, I think often is a good come across clients that are in, you know, trauma recovery or, you know, that have had some significant challenges and, you know, they're doing therapy that also seem like they're empaths and that that becomes part of their, their, dis, their diagnosis or their disability or their, 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 their issues, right? Is because they're so they're so in tune with those emotions, but they don't have the ability to put up the boundaries and the safeguards because they're not even aware that they're taking on other people's emotions. And I find that it's kind of sometimes that very same conversation is of, of look, you can really sense people's energy and their emotions. I like, look at what you just did here, right? And give them those examples and then have to teach them how to separate themselves. And I see you shaking your head like, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. Yep, yep, yep. I, no, I, I agree. There's so many of our folks that we work with that, that aren't aware of that. And, and that's where that sort of like cycle of addiction kind of comes into play, right? You see a lot of those, those folks that, are, that end up being empaths, you know, that were the child of somebody with an addiction. And, you know, as part of their role in that family system, you know, they've, learned to be the, you know, the helper, the buffer, the protector, you know, whatever their role was specifically, and, you know, develop that, you know, that empathic, uh, that empathic sort of quality about themselves. And, um, you know, so it, it sort of is something that's functional in their family system, but becomes dysfunctional as they grow. And as they get out there in the world, and they're just like this exposed nerve to everything. And, you know, that exposed nerve is just going to constantly be triggered. Um, it's going to constantly be overwhelmed, and they live in this state of hypervigilance. And, 
you know, that really a lot is the core of, of so many folks and, and why they struggle with depression and addiction. Um, and so, uh, you know, because we, we find that, I find that working with a lot of these individuals are, they're incredibly caring, they're incredibly in touch, but they don't know that part of themselves. And uh, so 100% uh, with you on that show. Mm. It's just, it's interesting. There's so many, it's not, it's complex. And, and I don't know too many situations. We might say, well, you just have addiction. So you're a pretty simple case. And, <laughs> but we as human beings are never simple. It's always complex. And there's always all of these layers that are on top of each other that you kind of have to pull apart and look at a little bit at a time to, to get that bearing. And, and even like you said, um, you know, kind of that value system of who am I and how do I fit into this world and what's important to me and what isn't. And um, I was talking to somebody that said, you know, someone who's been heavily in their addiction since they were young, um, you know, they may not even know how to go get an apartment and sign a contract and even know what any of that, some of those things we all take for granted look like. And so you kind of have to start down at the very basics and work your way back up with some, with some of the clients. And it's, it's just, it's so humbling for me, and I think you find this too, is, is they teach us so much in their journey and their willingness to go down that road and, um, and really look at some hard things that they've just never been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, when you think about what that, and I think that's why peers in our field are so powerful, um, you know, because they can, you know, and, and that, again, talk about empaths, right, and, and how... You know, peers can be so incredibly valuable, valuable because of that you know they can really um, you know connect with those those kinds of things and understand you know what that might might be like for somebody to uh, confront addiction and confront you know uh, these 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 things in their life that they need to address in order to to move on to where they want to be in their their ultimate chosen value role right um, these these are you know these aren't comfortable things and I. You know, try sometimes to, to talk to folks who may not be in the space, right, the behavioral health space, and uh, you know, kind of try to analogize it, you know, as best I can. And you know, I remember talking to one person. It's like, you know, you're you want to lose weight. It's like, how hard is it sometimes to step on the scale and look at the number and confront it, right? Now multiply that by a, a thousand, and, you know, an infinite amount, right? And, and when we're working with folks in addiction, like that's what it is, right? It's 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 getting into, you know, you were talking about the layers and. A lot of times it's getting into those core beliefs, right? When we take that cognitive behavioral approach, you know, getting down to like those, those core beliefs of, of it, people is, uh, it's deep, you know, and, and that's rooted in, you know, uh, childhood wounds, you know, and, and childhood traumas and, you know, the development of their sense of self. And when you get to that level, it's fundamentally, you know, uh, who that person is and, you know, that is uh, the most vulnerable that somebody can be is exposing that part of themselves. You know, um, think about the deepest, darkest, you know, experiences you've had in life uh, and how they've shaped you and how difficult that might be to talk about with a stranger. Um, you know, and even just talking about this yesterday, talking about this, some, some things with my team about, uh, you know, engagement and, you know, folks uh, getting to their first appointments, right? We're, we're talking a lot about that. And, you know, our job at the first appointment is always really to make sure they come back to the second appointment. That's always your job, right? But just getting people to come to that first appointment and really um, challenging the team, you know, our directors and our managers here, you know, I want you to tune into what that's like for somebody, you know, and uh, kind of go to a place that you've never been to before 
um, to meet with people that you don't know, to talk about things that you've never maybe talked about before that are, you know, really difficult to talk about or you might not have ever even thought about or wanted to bring to your consciousness. So the amount of courage that it takes for folks to begin this process um, is incredible and definitely cannot be understated. But, you know, the thing that you said too, I think that's, that is really critical in terms of uh, some of those, uh, you know, those activities of daily living or those, uh, you know, psychosocial sort of uh, functions and, and so on. Those end up being either compromised by years of addiction, right, or, or years in, in, you know, dealing with mental health, um, or people may have never had the exposure to it, right, because they were involved in addiction or mental illness, dealing with mental illness at those formative years. And so as we're working with people, you know, you're, you're sort of concurrently, you know, helping people therapeutically to understand that true sense of themselves and to heal and to deal with those those underlying core beliefs and how those influence their behaviors and their thoughts and their emotional responses, while at the same time trying to address some of those environmental, like, uh, concrete needs that people have that without, they're not going to be successful in recovery, you know, and, and developing those those important independent living skills, um, you know, that cannot be under understated either. Um, the, the, those things go hand in hand. You can't have the treatment without addressing those other things um, and vice versa. Well, and I love that you bring that up. I spoke with um, <clears throat> uh, Craig Lamont. He runs an adolescent program here in Utah. And he was kind of saying the same thing. And we were kind of talking about, you know, can somebody with, and we'll just use bipolar as an example, can somebody with bipolar heal to the point where they can go out and they can manage life and do well? And, and his comment was, well, Yes, but it's it comes right back to the skills training is do they know daily living and do they know what they're going to do when the symptoms arise? Because it's not like they're never going to have that roller coaster ride again, but that it's, it's all about learning what they're going to do when they experience it. I know one, one lady that, you know, she experiences suicidal ideation and it's part of her bipolar and she learns to see the signs and she immediately checks herself into the hospital and then they... You know, they take care of it, they get her medicated and stabilized again, and then away she goes, and she goes back to work, and she functions, and she's just learned how to do that. Um, and so I just think it's interesting, and I'm glad that you bring that up, because I think that skills training, although we focus on it a lot, I think it has probably more value than we may give it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we have this uh, initiative. We, we use a lot and infuse a lot of um, psych rehabilitation into what we do at Oats um, in, in terms of uh, when we talk about holistic treatment, you know, that care management out in the community, environmental resources and concrete needs and all that um, is, is huge, peer services, the treatment. But the psych uh, rehabilitative piece is so essential. And you know, that's what we're touching on here. And um, we work with one of our local universities, uh, Rutgers uh, University State uh, University of New Jersey, and they have this integrated employment institute. And uh, we've been working with them for several years on uh, helping to train our staff. Um, and, and psych rehab services are, are kind of baked into some regular regulatorily into some aspects of like our partial day programs and so on. Um, but we sort of we try to go beyond that in terms of. Uh, training our staff uh, across the spectrum, across our levels of care and our continuum of services um, in understanding how uh, significant that, uh, you know, addressing that is in treatment. And when I say psych rehabilitation, we're talking about um, housing, you know, maintaining, finding, maintaining housing, 
um, finding, maintaining employment, um, you know, uh, seeking educational opportunities um, or continuing educational opportunities. Um, but you know, the other part of it too is is also for people who are you know in recovery. How do you make sure that as symptoms may arise or you may be compensated or potentially relapse, that you don't lose your, your place of employment, you don't lose your, your home, you know? Because these, these are the realities in terms of dealing with addiction and, and recovery and mental health, mental health is, uh, you know, that, that these things happen. Symptoms will, will you know, feel you know, worse over time and, you know, get better. Um, but uh, how do we prevent, you know, loss of those things too? So that, that's always like a very integral key part that we try to bake into all of our programs is that site rehabilitative piece. And again, evidence shows, research shows, you know, that folks who are, you know, living and pursuing, you know, their chosen value role in life are much less likely to decompensate or relapse. Um, I mean, that is just what has been shown and demonstrated. So, you know, a lot of times when we talk about people getting jobs and working with them on that, you know, uh, it's not from the standpoint of, you know, that pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of thing, right? It's about how that, um, that the, the function of finding a job, the function of maintaining employment or, you know, pursuing an educational goal, that really helps to reinforce that person in, uh, you know, working on their recovery journey and, you know, avoiding relapse and avoiding decompensation. It gives people purpose and people need purpose and meaning. Um, in, in order to, to, to be successful in their recovery. And that is the, that is the, the fundamental aspect of recovery um, that if we don't have, we don't, can't find that for people, um, then we're missing, missing a huge part. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And I love that you bring that up because that purpose and meaning, right? We're back right back to Viktor Frankl. And if we can find purpose and meaning in our experiences, no matter where they're at or what kind of environment they're in, we can make it through, right? It gives us that reason, that thing to hold on to, that hope, would you, you know, or that peace that says, I can do this because it has meaning and purpose. So it's big. That's big. Yeah. As, sure. as I was listening to you introduce yourself and talk about all of your family members, your wife and, yeah. you know, law in-laws and, and all the sorts of family members, I was trying to imagine what a family gathering would be like of all these clinicians that are, you know, I don't know, I get together with all my clinician team and, and it's all we can do is agonize about all of the things that we have to put up with. I'm just curious what a family gathering looks like for you. <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I have had to, uh, it's interesting, we, we had to sort of like keep some boundaries on it um, to a degree. Uh, now, it's not to say we don't, we don't talk about it or anything, but... Um, but it, it, it's interesting, and we're sort of like this group within our family, um, because nobody outside of you know this immediate group is uh, is, is really involved in the field. So um, yeah, we get, we get together, we talk shop, and you know my my kid sister is uh, I say that she appears that she might be upset if I call her a kid sister, but, <laughs> um, but she's she's eight years seven eight years younger than me. Um, but um, you know she's uh, you know been in the field for a bit now, but. Um, you know, it's interesting kind of hearing her experience, you know, and what she's doing. And, um, and she works with a, with a really um, high risk, you know, population. She works with, uh, with youth uh, who are in a really high level of residential care. And um, so she's got such a demanding job and, and, and so on. Uh, you know, my brother was more in the addiction space um, for, with adolescents and uh, doing that, that work. And uh, my wife is, uh, 
she's worked a lot with kids too and uh, and adults and has done clinical work and she's an adjunct professor and a professor and you know and, and all that sort of thing but it's an interesting it's definitely interesting you talk shop and uh but we're all kind of in these like little different uh you know niches of the industry so it's it's interesting that when we get together we talk about like all where things overlap and what's going on on your side of the table. Uh -huh. My brother's in the for-profit world too, which is always a little bit different. So uh, so that's a, an interesting dynamic. But um, yeah, it's, it's quite quite interesting. I think some of our family don't really understand. It would be fun. <laughs> how much, um, how much uh, cross therapy, uh, you know, how much cross therapy's happened in there? Are you guys doing therapy with each other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's group supervision actually. So, you know, uh, we get together for a holiday. It's like, uh, you know, let's check off an hour on, uh, you know, for group supervision. There you go. <laughs> I love it. It's cool, to, it's cool to have those resources, you know what I mean? And uh, people are like, well, how did that all happen? You know, just, again, that empath sort of a thing, and, uh, you know, we all just kind of found our way. Yeah. I even tried to tell myself, like, don't get, you'll do your own thing. She's like, this is what I want to do. It's like, okay, by yeah. all means. Well, yeah, and I, it's just it's fun to think about, and and like as a as a clinician or as a therapist, I expect, you know, I've worked really hard to do myself right and to do my own healing and my own journey along the way, and so I think that sometimes I expect a much more robust relationship with people, you know, more accountability, and I expect, you know, I just expect certain things, and and I'll look at somebody like deer in the headlights, they have no idea what I even what language I'm even speaking. And so it's, it's funny to, I'm like, Oh, I got to back out. I got to back out of this. Cause they don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or you understand things about people that they may not understand about themselves. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, man, it gives you a little bit of an insight into stuff. <laughs> well, and it, it's, it is fun. Cause you can, you know, I go to the grocery store and I don't know. I think people, you tell me if you experience this, but people can sense that you're safe to talk to and they'll just tell you your life story right there. I'm like, should I let them keep going? Like, I don't know how to handle this and don't make eye contact because I'm not sure. Do you get that? <laughs> that is that is my wife to a T. More than it is me, probably because, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a bigger guy. I'm like 6'1 six, six and, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm bigger. I think I look pretty approachable. But it does happen, but definitely happens to my wife. You know, anywhere we go, you know, she's... People are connecting with her wherever she works and, and all that sort of thing. But I think that's that energy too. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the physical thing, you know, and, and, and but I think, you know, you exude that sort of vibe of uh, being approachable, of being a, a good listener. And, uh, you know, there's there's those, um, you know, uh, those those cues that you give people, those those uh, non-physical, those non-verbal sort of things that people pick up on, you know? And uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess. And, <laughs> and I know. You get you a session, and you're like, yeah, I, this person just won't open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe if I bumped in a little bit in the grocery store, then <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, yeah. And especially, I've been in the addiction treatment world, and, and it's so funny because I want to know what all the staff is getting told because I know they're not telling me as their therapist. They're telling somebody, but they're not telling me. And I'm like, I need to know what they're telling you, all right? It's, yeah. it's just, it's a funny dynamic, and, and we can laugh about it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these um, organizations, some of the community organizations and the associations that you've been involved with and how those have shaped your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, I spent most of my career here at Oaks Integrated Care, um, but you know, I work 
you know, doing some other things as well. While I've worked in the past with some other organizations, um, legal services, you know, like I said, worked with kids aging out of foster care. That was really where I spent, you know, the, the beginning of my career, and, and uh, I'm glad that I did. It was, you know, fantastic uh, experience. Um, you know, more recently in my role as VP here at Oaks, and you know, overseeing services that we have from now, now everyone probably won't really know the, the counties in New Jersey, but we serve almost uh, all counties in the state. Um, so we have some some stuff in the northern region, but the entire southern region, and we're one of the largest providers uh, in the state, uh, if not the largest uh, behavioral health nonprofit provider in the state. So we serve quite a number of people. We have a, a really huge geographic um, spread. Uh, and so, you know, I ended up having the opportunity to work with a lot of different other organizations and, um, you know, and in terms of our relationship with the state and our Department of Health, um, you know, we have been uh, really fortunate to be sort of on the forefront of, of implementing a lot of new things and being, uh, you know, involved in a lot of new initiatives. Um, and that's really allowed us to, um, you know, get involved even on the federal level for, you know, advocacy for mental health and addiction services. and. You know, I've spent uh, a lot of time doing that over the past, uh, you know, four to five years, um, you know, working with uh, the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, formerly known as the National Council for Behavioral Health, um, trying to push uh, leg legislation through um, to, you know, uh, for kind of various different things related to behavioral health and, and addictions work, um, you know, but mainly uh, trying to push through some services that uh, some, some demonstration projects like our certified community behavioral health clinics. In, in the U.S. that started five years ago um, and trying to get those as a, uh, you know, to, to, to be more widespread throughout the country beyond our original demos. So it's been a lot of work, you know, doing that, um, you know, uh, going into Washington, meeting with, uh, you know, uh, whether it's uh, healthcare staffers, you know, uh, legislators and, and so on, and, and really trying to, uh, you know, uh, get support for what it is that we're doing and get buy-in. And, and I'll say, the interesting thing is that there is a lot of bipartisan support for, for what we do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't seem to be uh, something that is, is particularly polarizing um, when you get down to like working with legislators on, on this sort of thing. I think when it comes down to more, more often than not, it's funding and spending, um, you know, and that's always the, the fight. But, uh, but I think from, you know, a need perspective, uh, you know, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever had anybody on either side of the aisle have more or, or less of a uh, interest in, in doing this or in, in being involved in CCBHC and some of the other legislation. Uh, there's just always those other challenges that we, excuse me, that we have to work through, whether it's budgetary or, or you know, bureaucratic sorts of things. Um, so that's been a huge part, like I said, in my, my career for the past four to five. And I think um, as I've sort of developed my career and, and overseeing, you know, things and implementing programs and you know, these, these, these really neat federal programs like CCBHC, um, I've been able to, to kind of parlay that into more macro level like advocacy. And, you know, and I found a, a really tremendous passion for doing that too. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in trying to, uh, you know, shake things up, right? And, and do new and different things and, you know, question why are we doing things the way that we're currently doing them and trying to find a better way to make it happen. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of opportunity over the past five to six years um, with respect to uh, new types of services and programs and thinking around our addiction space and behavioral health in general. And uh, I've been trying to capitalize on, on that in, in terms of, uh, hey, CCBHC has been, you know, proven. Uh, MAT is, is evidence-based. Like, how do we 
get these things more widespread out there, you know, in, in the uh, in, uh, in, in throughout the rest of the country. Uh, I've also spent some time uh, doing some um, mentoring of certified community behavioral health clinics um, throughout the country and helping to stand up different projects through the National Council. Um, so I've you know had the opportunity to connect with folks and organizations you know as far as California, uh, Maryland, so kind of throughout the country, and you know really uh, providing some uh, you know peer colleague kind of support and how to stand these things up and how to be successful. So you know beyond what we do here at Oaks. Um, you know, there's this bigger picture thing of how do we help our field in general overall to be successful, you know? Um, and I think that's one thing that's kind of cool about our industry. You know, we're, we're competitors, right? And I talked to our, our local, you know, sort of uh, partner agencies, we're competitors, but, you know, if, if one of us does well, you know, we all do well, we could all pull together and you know, do things in a better way. It's just better for our industry in general. So, so that's been my, my perspective, um, you know, recently too, is, is uplifting the entire industry as much as, you know, we're trying to do the best that we can here at Oaks. Hmm. Well, and there's no shortage of people who need help. I think the shortage is spaces where they can get helped. I was talking to an organization in Washington State, and and if I'm not mistaken, they were outpatient um, services, and they said they had an 18-month waiting period. And I was like, what? 18 months? Like, that's... Like that's life and death for some people. How do you? How can you have eighteen months? Yeah, it, that is like the demand for services, especially during COVID and over these past two. Uh, it's crazy to say there are two plus years of COVID. Um, you know, it's just been incredible. Um, you know, we were already handling and managing you know the opioid epidemic. You know, for for the past number of years, we were seeing you know numbers going up in terms of overdose deaths and rates. And then, you know, and a lot of that too was about attention. And I think uh, that we were collecting more information. We were more aware of overdoses, but they were generally going on. And then, you know, we started putting it out, you know, the Fed started putting out, you know, federal state opioid response grant money and putting new things into place over the past few years that were really making a difference in communities. Um, and then COVID happens and that just, you know, exacerbate everything, right, for everybody. Um, providers are less available. Um, people are more anxious. They're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, greater stress in their home life, in their work life. They're losing their jobs. Now cost of living is going up. So, you know, the, the, the need is just, you know, incredible right now. Um, and uh, that's not uncommon, I think, to hear 18-month waiting lists. And so, you know, that's a great example, though, of, of why these models of care that we're talking about, like these certified community behavioral health clinics and these integrated models of care and these um, these, these programs and services that are uh, supported federally um, and are really focused on implementing holistic services that utilize best practices are so critical. Um, you know, these organizations that have these wait lists, you know, they would benefit and their communities would benefit tremendously uh, if there was the opportunity to put some of these things into place. Um, you know, a lot of uh, organizations I end up talking to throughout the country um, whether they're operating under managed care contracts or fee-for-service contracts, um, you know, they are just, you know, a, a step behind, you know, where we need to be. And that's the unfortunate reality for most of our industry right now. I think we're on the precipice of a paradigm shift in the way we do business as behavioral health. Um, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing us turn a corner. Um, and part of that, too, is getting recognized, and I say this as a redhead, 
you won't be able to see it on podcast, <laughs> right? But as, you know, behavioral health being a redheaded stepchild of the healthcare industry, um, and that there has not been the kind of parity that we need in behavioral health care that we've seen in other, other industries or other, other uh, facets of healthcare um, to really allow us to do, um, you know, what needs to be done and, and give us the resources to be as effective as we can be, right? Um, and, and I think that, again, hopefully we're starting to see that shift. I think that some of the projects we've been working on, like CCBHC and some other local things that we've been doing, um, have been able to show that, in, in fact, increasing behavioral health care resource is, is reducing the total cost of care for uh, individuals. And that, that, that includes physical health needs, right? So, so there's a value in that way. And then, um, and of course, the ultimate value is the outcome that people are experiencing as individuals. And, uh, and the more resource we're giving them in terms of behavioral health, you know, the, the more they're able to manage and they're able to, to handle um, in their life. So I, I think that, um, that really uh, investing in behavioral health and, and bringing us up to where we need to be uh, in terms of on, being on par with other healthcare is, is really critical. Uh, and it's going to help with things like that, those 18-month waiting lists. Um, you know, and, and I know every state's got their own thing, but, um, you know, staffing, salaries, um, you know, behavioral health is, is notoriously, um, you know, been uh, the lower paying of the healthcare, you know, uh, you know programs and, and positions and so on. And specifically, you know, our social workers and our LPCs and our, our mental health counselors outside of the hospital systems are, you know, and our nonprofits are, you know, even, even less so uh, paid. And a lot of that is because of uh, funding, it's because of uh, rates um, and, and all these sorts of things. And with these new things like certified community behavioral health clinics, you know, we have an opportunity to actually change the payment methodology, the way that we get paid for doing what we do in a way where it helps to um, really reimburse us based on the cost of doing business versus uh, an established rate that we have no input or control over. Um, and the other cool thing about some of these models is that they have a value-based repayment incentive that, uh, built into them, which essentially means that, you know, as the organization and the program performs based on, you know, as measured by uh, outcomes uh, of individuals served, you know, then you can, you know, recoup additional funding and additional uh, reimbursement um, based on your outcomes. And so that's tremendous. You know, it's it's giving us money to, to do what we need to do to pay people what we uh, what, what they deserve to be paid to do this difficult, difficult work, um, and then incentivizes us to, to do the best that we can. So, you know, this is, uh, I always hate to bring it back to money, um, but, um, you know, I think that these are some really fundamental things that need to change in our industry in order to take us to that next place and to get us so people can pick up the phone and or they can walk in a facility and be treated immediately because that's the ultimate goal. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, I like, uh, you know, it's fascinating how you talk about a paradigm shift and there, there's been quite a few. I mean, we came from break them down, tear them down and try and build them back up and really punitive, which it's still there. But I think we've come a long ways from where we started, but we have a long ways to go. And you've really talked a lot about some of those gaps and some of the places where we struggle and answers as to how, um, you know, we can kind of fill some of those gaps. Um Oh, and one of one of the things you brought up, and I'm curious. I was at a conference here just recently and listened to a presentation. You talked about MAT treatment, and there's um there's a lot of stuff, a lot of services being provided in the MAT world 
that's um, really helping stabilize some people um, in addiction and, and probably with their mental health as well. Um, but they were talking about psychedelics and, you know, ketamine and, and some of those treatments that are being researched and utilized, maybe not, you know, approved utilization, but um, and even I'll add TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation and neurofeedback to some of those, you know, maybe alternative or different than just your therapeutic approach. So I'm curious what you, you know, what your take is on some of that. And if that, if there's a, a fit for that in your, in your uh, program. Yeah, you know, I've, I've really um, been encouraged by, you know, I mean, people have been doing ketamine infusions for, for a while to, to really do, you know, to um, address uh, treatment-resistant depression. Um, and so I've been really um, happy to see that there's been some new products on the market. Um, you know, one of them is esketamine, which is uh, actually a, a nasal spray, uh, a ketamine nasal spray that is able to, uh, to help address treatment-resistant depression in individuals. Um, and uh, it's got some really promising um, uh, outcomes, and it's something that we're looking at, you know, uh, at implementing uh, and seeing what we can do to implement. Um, you know, it's newer, maybe the past few years, so we're, we're working with, uh, you know, internally with our medical directors to kind of figure out where and how does that have a place here and, and what can we be doing, but there's just tremendous, uh, tremendous upsides to that. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, the alternative things, uh, I think what we see is that it's not one size fits all for folks, right? It's not, um, it's not uh, you know, this is, it's really person-centered. You know, for one person, you know, it might be, uh, you know, MAT. For another person, it might be nothing. For somebody else, it might be, um, you know, some of what you were talking about, you know, the, the, the trans, uh, or, you know, the, uh, the different things that I know they're uh, talking about in terms of stimulating, like the vagus nerve, and how that can help folks that are, um, you know, that have, uh, are, are just feeling dysregulated and so on. So. There's a lot out there, and you know, it's how do we bring these things to the forefront and um, you know, and, and embrace them. And I think some of the the things are not fringe. I think necessarily in terms of their validity, but I think fringe in terms of their adoption into the mainstream of behavioral health services. And so um, I'm really happy to see that there's been some bigger clinics embracing some of these different techniques and newer techniques um, because uh, again, there's value. In that. I think it's not one size fits all. You know, one person it might work for somebody else. You know, may may benefit from something you know more experimental, like what we're saying. A lot of cool things happening with um, you know uh, microdosing uh, psilocybin, um, different things like that. You know, and that's been shown to cre uh, help create neuro, uh, new neural pathways in people's brains. Um, folks that have dealt with you know long-term depression or or trauma. Um, you know, so a lot of promising things out there. I think. Uh, you know, there's probably some ideological, you know, challenging that we need to do as a healthcare industry and as individuals um, to be open to embracing these kinds of things. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm excited that there's been a lot of attention paid to this and um, to see what we can start embracing and maybe, you know, what we can start to implement and, and you know, begin to see as the standard. Uh, even MAT, I think the past 10 years has made a huge jump in terms of being a much more mainstream um, you know, service and, and uh, treatment uh, intervention that is, is much more uniformly and consistently embraced. You know, 10 years ago, uh, MAT and Suboxone and, and, you know, methadone weren't really as, as embraced as they are now. You know, we used to really follow like that abstinence only model. Um, and there's still some folks out there that, that adhere to that. And, 
and follow that. But, you know, what we've seen is over the past decade that evidence really shows that, you know, people who are using and being prescribed MAT and are engaged with that are, you know, have much better chances of recovery and much lower relapse rates, um, especially when it's done the right way and it's done based on, on best practice. Um, and I think that a lot of attitudes have changed, you know, as a result of, of doing that. It's now seen as the gold standard. I think we're not seeing as much of a pushback, you know, like abstinence only, and, um, you know, so. <clears throat> well, we could talk about that for a long, long time, but, but I, I, I do think it's super important to, um, you know, there's got to be research and, and it's nice to see that our industry is evolving and we are looking at things that have been successful and, and finding those populations that they're most beneficial for so that, you know, we can kind of fine tune. I look at some of these, you know, epigenetics and some of the genetic testing that's going on that also improves that piece of finding the medication. So you're not a year into your medication journey before you find a combination that works, right? Because that's painful. And so we've come a long ways and I think we're going to continue to, you know, go down that road to where it becomes um, much much more effective, I guess, is effective and that we're able to treat more people. And so I love, I love what you're putting on the table and kind of what you've um, initiated and that, you know, you're, you're about helping the communities regardless of where it is. It's not about competition, but it's about let's help the most people that we can. And um, I've appreciated you spending time with us and really talking about um, your experience in the industry. It's been super valuable. Absolutely. This is phenomenal. And uh, I really appreciate uh, having uh, being on this and uh, talking with you, and um, you know, it was just such a joy. Well, and I imagine um, you know you have such a I won't say unique, but you have a position where you know you you've done a lot of creating and are helping a lot of people. They're going to want to connect with you and probably learn more about you know what you're offering and and the connections that you have and the um, systems that you've put in place or help put in place and. And so uh, maybe some contact information would be important. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, people can connect with me directly on LinkedIn. Um, definitely one way to, to connect with me. And then folks can also reach out to me uh, via email. Um, Michael.Domico at oaksintcare.org. Um, they can also visit our, our uh, website at oaksintcare.org. Um, learn more about what Oaks is doing. Um, you know, us out in the community, what we're doing in New Jersey. And um, you certainly reach out and I'm happy to speak with anybody throughout the country, even if it's just to, to chat peer to peer and uh, hear what other folks are doing. You know, and, and again, like you said, how can we help the most people as, as a community of behavioral health providers? And one of the, I think the, the most critical ways that we do that is we share um, our experiences with each other um, and that we, you know, exchange ideas and, you know, promote growth and, um, you know, help stand each other up. So more than happy to, to connect and uh, uh, again folks can reach out to me via LinkedIn or, or through my uh, email address. Mm, fantastic. Um, yeah, fantastic. We could talk for days and days about all of these different aspects. So we'll call it we'll call it today, but um, thanks for taking time to share your perspective, share your experience and um, I've loved I've loved every minute of it. Same. Thank you, Shelley.